Good morning. Please, uh, if you have a paper Bible, please turn to pages 978 and 979. Uh, The reading for this morning is from Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 22. Ephesians 5, starting at verse 22, this is the word of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Please pray with me. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truthfulness and inerrancy of your word. And Lord, we confess that we are sinners and we see and hear and interpret everything through a flawed uh, grid because our hearts are distorted, our minds are distorted by sin. And so, Lord, we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us and give us a right understanding of your word, give us a right understanding of your will for us. Lord, write your word on our hearts. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the series that you have been working through is entitled Christ in the Church, and the theme is to explore what it means to be united to Christ. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is a marvelous exploration of this mysterious union between Christ and his church. But what exactly is union with Christ? One of my seminary professors, Richard Gaffin, defined union with Christ this way. He said, the expression union with Christ refers to the believer's solidarity or association with Christ by the Holy Spirit and through faith by virtue of which believers partake of his saving benefits. The Apostle Paul himself describes union with Christ in Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, by saying that Christ is head over all things in the church, which is his body and the fullness of him who fills all in all. But the whole letter of uh, Ephesians is an extended description of what it means for the believer to be united to Christ. And in today's passage, Paul tells us that to be united to Christ 
is like a marriage between a husband and a wife. Only this is not a typical marriage, it's a marriage quite literally made in heaven. And so we'll look at marriage as it relates to union with Christ under three headings, earthly marriage, heavenly marriage, and counting down to the wedding day. Earthly marriage, heavenly marriage, and counting down to the wedding day. So the first point, earthly marriage. My wife Susan and I just celebrated our 21st, uh, 22nd rather, anniversary a week ago. And back when we were engaged, we, we both attended a church in, North, in um, Alney, rather, uh, and we had some close relationships there with a bunch of married couples. And I remember as I was uh, getting closer and closer to uh, our wedding day, a number of the men in those, uh, those families came up to me and they, I, I think that they were being funny, uh, or they were trying to be funny, but they shared with me some version of the old trope, uh, live it up now because once you're married, your life's over. The old ball and chain and, uh, and, and, and stuff like that. And again, I think that they were doing it to be funny. But one of the things that Jesus tells us uh, in, in Luke 6 is that it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so even in our humor, we reflect what we truly think and believe inside. And these men, at some level, felt like their lives, at least the lives that they wanted, the lives that they valued, were over once they got married. Or at least they were changed in some way that uh, they didn't like. Why do we ridicule something so beautiful as the covenant relationship between a man and a woman? Maybe it's because the relationships between husbands and wives are so broken by sin. And we don't love one another in the ways that we were meant to. By that, I, I don't mean that husbands and wives just sometimes annoy one another or are careless in their love because they're only human and make mistakes. Now, the problem in failing to love one another in marriage is deeper and, and far more complex than just that. And the problem doesn't just belong to us in the 21st century. As a matter of fact, the marriage relationship was fractured by sin in the earliest chapters of the Bible. Just 1,604 words into the Bible. In Genesis 3-7, we read that the first husband and wife, Adam and Eve, lose the perfect intimacy and trust that they had with each other from the beginning. If you think back to the responsive reading that we had today from Genesis 2. Adam uh, was presented with Eve by the Lord, and, and he was excited. And, and the last verse, uh, Genesis 2.25, said that the man and wife were both naked and they were unashamed. That probably referred to their physical nakedness, but it also referred to their emotional and spiritual nakedness, meaning that they were hiding nothing from one another, that there was no intrigue, there was no deception, there was nothing that uh, was a barrier in any way to their perfect union, their perfect relationship, their perfect intimacy. But now that was gone. 
And just a few verses later in Genesis 3.16, God tells Adam and Eve about one of the enduring consequences that their sin would have on their marriage and every marriage to follow. And he said this, your desire, he's speaking to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The, the perfect intimacy that Adam and Eve had where they were just able to enjoy this, this unique state of union, this unique, unique state of oneness, it was now broken. They would struggle to, to find that oneness again, and they would always uh, be dealing with a, a competition between the two of them. Whereas before the, sin they had, uh, before the fall into sin, rather, they had perfect alignment of thought and desire, now marriage would be adversarial. What God said, essentially, in Genesis 3.16 is, you're going to want one thing, but the other person is going to resist you having it. That sounds like a recipe for a happy marriage, doesn't it? Two people constantly at odds with one another. Well, all fiction has some basis in reality. Some of you may know that one of my hobbies is listening to old-time radio programs, and there was a show called The Bickersons that ran from 1948 until 1951 uh, and starred Don Amici and Francis Langford. And I know that none of you here remembers that because you're all far too young. But I'll I'll tell you about it. As you might guess, The Bickersons' last name is descriptive of their relationship. They constantly bicker with one another. And here's an exchange from one program. The, The wife's name in the program was Blanche and the husband's name was John. Blanche said, you used to be so considerate. Since we got married, you haven't, uh, you haven't got any sympathy at all. And John said, I have too. I've got everybody's sympathy. And Blanche said, believe me, there's better fish in the ocean than the one I caught. And John responds with, well, there's better bait too. It's not very funny, is it? And while we think that this kind of conflict is corny and contrived, it points to the core problem with marriage and with individual spouses, that each spouse is focused on him or herself instead of on the other. And that's the core sin behind the pronouncement in Genesis 3.16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That instead of loving the other person sacrificially and serving them, We love ourselves first and expect the other person to serve us. And that's not only the core of all conflict in marriage, that's the core of all conflict, period. James, the brother of Jesus, writes this in James 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And so this is the context into which Paul speaks when he begins giving application to husbands and wives in today's passage. In verse 22, when Paul exhorts wives to submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, he knows that what he's saying is something which is completely antithetical to the way human fallen beings, I'm sorry, fallen human beings typically engage with one another. 
And the exhortation in verse 22 to submit is not meant to be taken legalistically as if the man is always right or that he in some way deserves obedience by his own merits. Rather, it points to something else. Tim Keller was a pastor and teacher in our denomination in New York City, and he went uh, to be with the Lord a couple of weeks ago. He and his wife Kathy wrote a book several years ago called The Meaning of Marriage. And according to the Kellers, the foundation of covenant marriage must be that a husband and wife become each other's best friends. Why is that important? Well, it's because best friends trust one another. They, they bear one another's burdens. They love one another during difficult times and are at least as much committed to the other person as they are to themselves. A best friend won't demand that the other person bend to their own wishes. A good best friend serves the other person willingly and joyfully because what concerns them is their best friend's flourishing. And I think that what Paul is getting at here, that husbands and wives would willingly surrender their own agendas, whatever those agendas might be, in order that love for the other would be what defines the marriage. Where do we see this kind of relationship at work? Well, it's among the members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each willingly submits to the others, listens to the others, serves the others. And that depth of love is what God wants husbands and wives to enjoy in their marriage. And so Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And later on, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, I know that even that that verb submit bristles with a lot of you, and it bristles with the vast majority of people in the culture today because we don't want to have to submit to anyone let alone wives submitting to husbands. And yet the context of the verb submit here in verse 18 is an unusual one, appearing just a few times in Scripture and all in letters from Paul and Peter. It's grammatically a parenthetic use, meaning that Paul is deeply encouraging or exhorting wives to willingly submit to their husbands, not out of obligation, and not because, as I said a moment ago, their husbands are always right. Paul deeply encourages wives to submit because in putting aside their own agendas, in putting aside their right to be right, they model the perfect, faithful love and patience and trust that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit share with one another. And this was the kind of love that we were redeemed to reflect into one another's lives. And I need to say here that this is not a blanket call for wives to submit to their husbands in all situations or at all times. One instance where it would not be wise or godly for a wife to submit to her husband would be when her husband wants her to ignore sin or to commit sin. And this includes abusive situations. It's never okay for a husband to be emotionally or physically or sexually threatening or abusive with his wife or with his children. 
And there are other times when it might be unwise for a wife to submit to her husband. And I can't go into all of those possible scenarios this morning, but if this is a situation in which you're involved, or if you know people who are involved in it personally, please come and talk with me or with Casey or with one of the elders. We want to help you work through that and respond to it in a godly way. So the call to wives is to submit to their own husbands. I should say also, just parenthetically, one of the ways in which um, this verse uh, has been turned into a doctrine that is both unbiblical and unhelpful is to say that women must submit to all men in all situations. And that's not at all what God is saying here. By By Paul saying specifically that women are to submit to their own husbands, he's saying specifically that this submission belongs to a particular relationship. What about the call to husbands? Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, the call for us is to set aside our agendas, our demands, to to serve our wives to the extent that Christ loved the church. That means giving up our own lives and not holding anything back. This means not demanding anything, not being selfish, not insisting on anything, not hiding in any way from our wives, but being a willing and joyful partner in the and best friend, rather, in the marriage relationship. And we do it all because the power of God is at work in us, transforming us into men who increasingly think and act and love like Jesus. That moves us on to the second point, heavenly marriage. This passage not only talks about the earthly realities of the husband-wife relationship limited by death and the consequences of sin, but it also describes the heavenly realities of Christ's people, the, the church, being united to him in an everlasting marriage. Paul says in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And Paul says simultaneously that God has an invitation in this passage for husbands and wives to live in in some transformed way in their conduct toward one another. That in some particular way, that conduct between human spouses and earthly marriage is a reflection of Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. He's drawing an analogy between the two relationships. And this is an eternal truth that we so frequently miss. Whether you're married now or have been married, or you've never been married, there's a wedding that awaits you if you are a follower of Christ. That wedding is between Christ, the bridegroom, and his church, the bride. And I think one of the reasons why we find it difficult to grasp this heavenly reality is that we tend to view our membership in the church as being limited to being a part of Third Reformed, as to being here in this physical space for a couple of hours on Sunday morning. But the true capital C church is not a physical building 
which we build or inhabit. It's not a collection of programs or things that we do. The church is not even being here to worship on Sunday morning. The capital C church is the bride of Christ. Paul and the other New Testament writers describe the church as the body of Christ with him as the head. And in Revelation 19, the Apostle John says that in some real way, the church will be married to Christ when he returns in glory. This is what he says. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for fine linen, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It's Revelation 19, verses 6 through 8. My friends, this is why Paul commands earthly husbands to love their wives as they would love their own bodies in verses 28 through 30 in today's passage, because Paul sees that Jesus loves his bride, the church, perfectly as a husband ought. He says in today's passage, verses 29 through 30, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. I'd like us to just sit with that image for a moment, that we are members of his body. This is what it means to be united to Christ, that Jesus is an increasingly, he's increasingly integrated in us as our hearts and minds are transformed. That's the, uh, the, the process that Paul talks about in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. It's a process called sanctification, and we have a role in it, and that role is called repentance. This is the very union that Jesus prayed for on the night he was betrayed in the garden. This prayer is recorded in John 17, verses 20 through 23. I'll read part of it for you. He says, and and this is Jesus praying to the the Father. He says, I do not ask for these only, meaning his, his disciples around him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, meaning us and all Christians throughout time, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So compare what Jesus asked his father for in that prayer with, what, uh, with the heavenly reality, rather, that Paul describes in Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 32, where he says, Therefore a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Do you see the connection between the two? Do you see the analogy? None other than Jesus Christ has chosen not only the church invisible, that is all the elect, but you 
personally to be his bride. His will is that all who believe would be with him forever in a union which his word says is akin to marriage. To use Jesus' own words, I in them and you, Father, in me, that they may become perfectly one. This is what it means to be united to Christ, to be loved by him, to submit to him by submitting to his will and to rest in his love. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. And and brothers and sisters, one of the reasons he draws this analogy is because the heavenly reality of us being united to Christ forever is, is, in a sense, demonstrated and played out in earthly marriage. Husbands and wives learn what it means to submit to Christ as they submit to one another and lay down their lives for one another. Husbands and wives learn what it means to live not for themselves, but for someone else. Earthly marriage is a wonderful gift. It's a wonderful institution in and of itself. It it is a blessing from the Lord. But it only points to something else. Our heavenly union with Christ. Point three. Counting down to the wedding day. For those of you who are or have been or are going to be married, you probably know that there's a lot that goes into preparing the wedding. For many earthly brides and grooms, that means planning the service and reception, inviting all of your family and friends, deciding who you can and can't have sit at the same tables, (laughs) registering a target, planning the honeymoon. But in this heavenly marriage of Christ's elect being united to him everlastingly, the work is more intense and much more internal than any human wedding has ever been. Think about it as really intense and long-lived premarital counseling. Paul describes the process of preparation for this wedding in verses 25 through 27, where he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And here we find ourselves in the midst of the already but not yet reality of our transformation as believers. Christ has already given himself up for us and has justified us through the shedding of his blood. But the not yet state in which we find ourselves is the process of continually being cleansed through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, as Paul calls it in Titus 3.5. This is the the process of the Spirit applying the word of God to our hearts and giving us supernatural grace to gradually turn and walk in repentance from all of the sinful desires and thoughts and behaviors that prevent us from being truly one with Christ. You see, 
If you think back to Genesis 3.16, where God pronounces the, the effects of the curse on Adam and Eve, this, this is God gradually undoing that. Instead of sin bringing irreparable division between husbands and wives, here Paul is describing the process of the Lord gradually bringing Christ and his church into union with one another, even as husbands and wives on earth are meant to gradually become one flesh as wives submit to their husbands and husbands lay down their lives for their wives. The word in Titus 3.5, which we translate into English as regeneration, is the Greek word palingenesia, and it literally means renewal or rebirth. And literally, this washing that Paul describes both in Titus 3.5 and in our passage today, in Ephesians 5.26, is the Spirit gradually making us into the renewed and reborn people that will be in Jesus' kingdom forever. In other words, the Spirit is working uh, in us to make us into a bride perfectly fit for her husband for all eternity. But the process of being renewed isn't a trip to the spa. It's not where we sit back and let other people work on us and refresh us. It requires our participation as well. And our participation looks like exercising the power that Jesus lovingly gives us to destroy the power of sin in our own lives. And if you're anything like me, that's a difficult and painful process to endure. But as you and I look forward to that future day when we will be present at the wedding feast of the Lamb, let's prepare now by asking the Lord to grant us steadfastness and perseverance to root out sin in our lives. Perhaps there are patterns of sin which seem particularly difficult to overcome and and put to death in your life. Perhaps it's greed or anger or lust or contentiousness, or bitterness, or envy, or any one of a a thousand different types of sin. Ask the Lord to help you put it to death. Be humble and ask other believers to pray for you and hold you accountable. And pray for the steadfastness to be willing to endure the pain of not giving in to that cherished desire. For motivation, look to the steadfast love that Jesus, your husband, has for you and his determination to fully sanctify you that you might be uh, standing before him at some point in the future in splendor without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing that you might be holy and without blemish. For those of us who are married or have ever been to a wedding, you remember that um, one of the the high points of a wedding ceremony is when a bride enters the sanctuary or enters the, the place where the ceremony is taking place and everyone sees her and in that moment you see this this woman who has spent probably weeks and a lot of money to look as beautiful as she could possibly look. She's radiant. 
and she bursts into the room, and everyone uh, is overcome with emotion because she looks so beautiful. My friends, that bride is you and me. And when our Lord Jesus, on that day which has already been set for our wedding, when he sees us as radiant and resplendent and pure and holy, without spot or wrinkle or blemish, that day uh, we will be amazed at what he has done. In your union with Christ and with the rest of the church, this is exactly who we are destined to be. Let's pray. Father, We have in mind the picture of a bride coming into the church and being a part of that wedding ceremony. And Lord, I can't imagine that that's going to be me. And I'm sure that uh, none of us here can, can truly imagine that that's going to be us because we realize how soiled our sin has made us. And so, Lord, I, I pray that we would trust you to be the one who cleanses us with your blood, renews our desires and our thoughts with your spirit, writing your word on our hearts. And Lord, you are even the one who gives us the grace and the strength to walk in repentance. And so, Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to submit to you even as you call earthly wives to submit to their husbands, because you, Lord, have already laid down your life for your wife, the church. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.